0: Hopefully you are enjoying it uh, so far. What I want to do is just talk for a few minutes about what is going on and the aim of this whole thing. It is a baby Thanksgiving, but I'm very much aware that some of you, particularly if you are not used to church or not used to church, that looks and feels like this. You could have a number of questions about the whole thing, really. Um, You could be thinking, what actually is going to happen here? Uh, You could be looking around, looking for various, um, I was going to say implements, but that's slightly not the right word, but items that are often used in kind of baby christenings or things like that and you're wondering if we're going to do something like that. You may be just thinking why are we doing this anyway? Is it some sort of, is it a religious ritual that we need to go through? Is it a form of spiritual kind of insurance or vaccination? You know, just in case anything bad ever happens to these kids, let's make sure we get God involved in some shape or form. What I'm planning to do is really explain to you, as well as I can, uh, what is going to happen and, and why we're doing it, and hopefully that will bring a little bit more clarity and clear up any misconceptions about it. I do have to be really clear right at the start, though, this, isn't, this is neither a, a traditional christening that you may have been used to going to see uh, in other churches, nor is this like the, the sort of modern jazzed-up equivalent of it. Uh, we, we haven't just said... Uh, Christenings are traditional. We haven't got any stonework or pews, but let's kind of make it look and feel a little bit different. This is something very, very different to that, really. We're not initiating anybody into a religion this morning. We're definitely not making anybody a Christian this morning, because as hopefully you will get an idea of throughout this talk... To do that would be both futile and impossible. To try and recruit these, these, these little babies into a religion would be against the whole spirit of Christianity. And to try and somehow make them become Christians while they're still wearing nappies would be impossible. Hopefully that will be clear as we go on. It's really, really simple what we are actually doing. We're, we're looking to do just a couple of things. We're going to thank God for the safe arrival of these little babies. And we're going to be praying for them. And we're going to be praying for their mum and dad as well. Because parenting's hard work at the best of times, isn't it? And at the worst of times, it feels like you want to put your head under the pillow and never come out again. So we're, we're going to pray for them as well. You, you know, they, they need it. I mean, twins. You just, you think, good on them, really. You know? good, good, good luck to you. What? <laughs> What what we are going to do, though, is to try and unpack what can, to some people, look like a bit of an odd kind of ritual. If you came here expecting a, a sort of christening thing, that's quite an odd ritual in itself. And to sort of make you feel a bit more comfortable, I've taken the time and trouble to dig out a few other kind of baby arrival rituals that people do around the place. Partly so that we can breathe a sigh of relief that we don't do these things, and partly so that what we are doing will come into better focus. I'll start with a fairly tame one, if I may, from Japan. In Japan, um, there's a ceremony that some people go through uh, with childbirth now, whereby the umbilical cord is considered very, very important. So that is kept after the birth and dried out, and it's placed in a special box called a Heso box. I don't know if I've pronounced that correctly. The chances are against it. And it's kept, it's kept for a lifetime of the person involved so I'm guessing that there's this weird thing that probably in Japan lots of people have got a drawer somewhere like we've maybe got like a little handprint or a footprint of the baby where well, you pull out a little box open it up <laughs> there it is like some sort of dried out snake that's been kind of following you around through life in um, Bulgaria, there's a different custom, but perhaps one that you can escape from a bit sooner. It's traditional in Bulgaria when you meet a newborn baby to pretend to spit in its face, and then and then you say to it, and I quote, "May the chickens poo on you." <laughs> so we're not doing that this morning. That's that's quite clear. The, there's, in Spain, there's the El Colacho uh, s- sort of festival where all the newborn babies are laid out on a mattress that's laid in the street. And a man dressed as the devil repeatedly jumps over them. And Wikipedia helpfully tells us this is one of the most dangerous festivals there is in the world. However, for me, it pales into insignificance with danger compared to the next thing that I dug up. And I had to do some digging to check, is this really true? And it really is true. There's a video you can find, should you have a strong stomach, to verify that what I'm about to tell you is true. There's a place uh, in India called Karnataka, and the ceremony here to welcome newborn babies in is they take them up onto the top of the temple. The roof is about 15 meters high. And then one of the religious guys stands on the top of the temple and holds the babies out over the edge of the temple, a Michael Jackson. But it gets it gets worse because there's, there's four guys at the bottom holding four corners of a sheet. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah they drop the babies 15 metres down onto the blanket and they bounce on the blanket and some guy catches them like that. Are you glad you're not living in India? I think. Apparently it's supposed to uh, make the babies both stronger and luckier. <laughs> I guess you're pretty lucky if you get away with it, aren't you? So um, must work. Closer to home, though, the Irish sprinkle cake crumbs on a baby's head. That's a bit more manageable, isn't it? That's a, that's a bit more our sort of style, really, than dropping them off buildings. So you could take your pick out of that. What I have done as well is dug out for you a less wacky one from the Bible. It's still a bit odd. I would rate it more odd than cake crumbs on the face, but definitely less odd than throwing them off buildings and jumping over them dressed up as the devil. And I'd like to read it for you. It's from the book of Numbers in the Old Testament of the Bible. And it says this, You must redeem every firstborn son when they are a month old. You must redeem them at the redemption price set at five shekels of silver. This is a slightly odd custom that's basically saying the first time you have a son, you have to pay for it. You have to kind of hand in, a, it's almost like a tax on your child. But it's the concept really is of buying them back. It's this, this word that's used several times of, of redeeming. It's the kind of thing that you would do. Maybe you'd got into debt and, and we we'll, will contextualise it and make us feel that we're in an ancient Israel uh, rather than today. So maybe I've got into debt and I've had to borrow some money off you. But because you want to make sure you get your money back, I'll, I'll lend you something. I'll lend you a sheep or I'll lend you... Um, Uh, a pot or or something else of value. And then when I finally got the money to pay you back, I want to redeem my sheep or my pot back. So I give you the money and you give me my pot back or my sheep back. And everybody's happy. Sometimes in less happy circumstances, you would actually redeem people back. There was this this quite unpleasant system where if you were in debt, sometimes people would effectively sell a family member as a slave until they could pay it back, and then they would redeem them back by paying the money back. And so we've got this slightly curious situation where a newborn baby arrives, and a month later, you have to kind of redeem them back. You have to buy them back with some cash which is very, very strange because it does seem like a tax on children. It seems like something that George Osborne hasn't thought up yet and we'll have to obviously make sure he's not listening to to cook up any more ideas. But it was genuinely this thing we have to buy them back for five shekels of silver. Now, I've taken the trouble to find some modern Israeli currency. This is five... New shekels, this isn't the same thing. Actually, I'm, it's not really. It's one, that one's a five-pence piece because I only had four new Israeli shekels. Um, do you know how much that's worth? Have a guess. 20p, all of it, or one of them? Just guess one. You're saying one, 20p, very good guess. They're, they're about, it's not set up, as you can tell. It's a, <laughs> about 17p so if this was if this was a real new Israeli shekel rather than a five pence piece I've got about 85 pence worth uh, which seems cheap doesn't it if you're putting a tax on kids however it's largely irrelevant I just did that because I found those in a drawer at home Uh, the reality is the shekels of silver that they're talking about would be somewhat more valuable, particularly if you remember that this was written to a kind of peasant culture. And the, the, the kind of best estimate of how much it's going to cost is about a week's wages, about a week's food money for our whole family. So it's quite a big deal that you've got to pay this five shekels or, or you know, four shekels and five pence if I was doing it today. So this five shekels is a big amount of money that you're having to kind of hand over when, when your child is born. And I mean, just to clarify as well, we're not doing that today. I haven't, I haven't brought this along so that you can hand it over in a ceremonial way. Neither am I expecting you to hand over a week's wages. What we're doing rather is looking at this odd, slightly wacky custom from the Old Testament, because it's a useful reminder of a couple of things that at this point, when there are new little babies around, is really, really helpful. Because it is a really, really, really important stage of life. There are certain kind of you know, life markers, key events that happen that you want to remember and take some time to kind of focus on. And I obviously think having a baby is one of them. Uh, The first thing that I think this is worth reminding us, that the five shekels reminds us that children are from God. And I'm going to clarify that in a moment, if a few of you find that a strange statement. I think we, we have a a slightly unusual culture. People talk about a culture of expectation or a culture of rights or a culture of entitlement where, whereby we kind of expect everything to go smoothly for us and work itself out smoothly. And often this can come over with children as well, that there's a kind of feeling that that's just what happens and, and you know, there's some kids and they'll arrive and that's what I want and that'll make my life sort of pan out in this way. And what this five shekels thing partly does is remind us that actually no, we can't bank on anything in life including children. And it reminds us that even though we completely understand the biological processes involved, children are given by God. God himself gives life. The Bible tells us that, but not in a kind of a weird sort of anti-science way. We're not some sort of odd church here thinking, you know, we don't believe in any of that science stuff. Those, those scientists, they're all, they're all making it up. It's God who gives the babies. science. We've never heard of it. No, no, Christians have never really believed that. Christians always believe through the normal biological processes, God allows people to have children. But it reminds us that they're not something that we've just kind of achieved or done for ourselves. It's not like, well, I've got a couple of kids, very well done. I'm, I'm, I'm pleased with that. It's telling us that actually God gives life. It means it's, this, it's one of the, the values that our culture has assimilated from Christianity without realizing it. It was Christianity with its teachings, actually God gives every single human life that allows us to place on people this sense of value and worth and intrinsic valuableness about people rather than what can they do for me or what's the economic output I can generate from them. It tells us that people themselves mean something and matter. And it was Christianity that brought that into our culture. If you do a survey of most of the history of the world, going back as far as we can into civilizations, you'll find that, by and large, this wasn't an accepted view. There was this kind of sense that other people, well, I can use them for my own ends, um, particularly in kind of the great empires of the past, and people really didn't matter. The five shekels reminds us that people do matter, and actually God gives children both from him and for him. I suppose the five shekels tells us that those of us who have kids reminds us actually they're not in the strictest sense ours, they're on loan. There's this sense in which God allows us to be custodians of these little people while they're growing up. Rather than thinking, my kid's done that, good job. we think actually God has allowed me to be a parent to these little guys. And I think it's really, really important because otherwise we kind of forget what's going on with parenting. One of the the biggest consequences, I think, of forgetting really what being a parent is all about is the assumption that the aim of being a parent is to have good kids. And you can, you, if you're a parent, you can really feel the pressure of this. It's, I've got to have great kids. And, and then you really feel it in the supermarket, don't you? When they're, when they're kicking off because they can't have any sweets. Or you feel it you know when they 're kicking off because they want to watch another CBeebies thing, or whatever, or when they 're a bit older, you 're kicking off because they can 't go out or they can 't stay out, or when they 're rude to people or, or, or a great auntie comes over and, and the kids don't want to talk to her because they 're busy playing video games or whatever, and, and you just think, ah, oh, you 're supposed to be better than that kid." You're supposed to behave yourself when kids aren't very nice, when they're selfish, rude, lazy, disobedient, frustrating, annoying. If you think the aim of being a parent is to have good kids, then you're very frustrated and disappointed. The five shekels reminds us, actually, the aim of parenting is to produce great adults. And the reason that it's frustrating often with kids is they're not finished yet. And, you know, you wouldn't want to eat, you wouldn't want to eat like a half-cooked Dinner, would you? Unless it was some sort of salad that's designed not to be cooked. And yet, you can look at your kids as a parent and think, "Oh, they're not good kids. They're showing me up. They're kicking off." Well, they're not finished yet. The aim of parenting, the five shekels reminds us. The aim of parenting is to is to help them grow into well-rounded adults who make their own decisions of faith. You can't make anybody become a Christian. Nothing I can do this morning will make Oliver and Charlotte into Christians. We can't do that because a Christian is someone who's made their own conscious decision of faith, a decision to accept what Jesus has done, the very things we've been thinking about today because fundamentally Christianity is not a religion. You can initiate people into religions quite easily. There's just some sort of ceremony, whether it's involving cake crumbs or throwing them off a temple. You can initiate them into a religion, but you can't initiate people into a relationship, which is what Christianity fundamentally is. It's, it's a connection that we have, a personal connection that we have with God. And it's something we have to choose to enter into ourselves. The, the message that Jesus really brings us is that we don't know God, that we're disconnected from God. We've lost this kind of relationship and we try and handle it in all sorts of various ways. Some people handle the fact that we're disconnected by God by ignoring God. I don't believe in him, I don't want anything really to do with him, I'm going to keep him out of my life. And I may be a good person, I may not, but it doesn't matter, I'm going to ignore God and keep him out. Other people try and do it a slightly different way. Other people think about handling this disconnection <clears throat> with God by literally refusing God. I don't want anything to do with that, I can't accept a God who does this, I don't want a God involved in my life. Other people take the other route of trying to placate God, and this may even be you of not really allowing God to be who he wants to be, but placating him with a little bit of religious duty now and again, a few religious ceremonies, maybe placating God, but I'm a good enough person, you should accept and respect me, God. But all of these are ways that actually don't bring us any nearer to God. They just allow us to live with the fact that we're disconnected with God, and Jesus came to allow us to personally reconnect with God. A real Christian is someone who's done that, who's reconnected with God through Jesus. But to state the obvious, little babies can't do that. The second thing that the five shekels reminds us is of the centrality of God. And I think this is really, really important, again, because in our culture, increasingly, we find people putting kids at the very centre of their lives. And this seems to us something that is very good and commendable. And people say, my kids, they're everything to me. My kids, they're the most important thing in my lives." Kids, they're they're everything. I'll do anything for them. And all of that's, of course, very commendable. We want parents who love kids and nurture them and care for them. And when we talk, though, about actually kids shouldn't be at the center of our lives, God should be at the center of our lives, that can immediately raise alarm bells. It conjures up images of people, you know, very harsh, sort of stern parents sort of, you know, whacking their kids with a cane whilst quoting the Bible. You know, we've all seen films with kind of, you know, bizarre stereotypes of that. Or the idea that there's somehow, by putting God at the centre of your life rather than your children, you're going to be very unnurturing towards them. You know, I'm too busy to care for my kids or play with them or feed them because I'm too busy praying or being religious or something. That's a stereotype and it's not really what we mean when we talk about the centrality of God. What I want us to understand is there's only two ways, fundamentally, of living life. One way is to allow God to be the center of our lives, the place that he kind of belongs. Actually, he's the most important thing and everything fits around him. Or we simply put something else at the center of our lives. Often very, very good things. So people put their children at the center of their lives. Or you might not articulate it this way, but that's the kind of the bottom line. Or you put a a relationship in the center of your life, whether it's a spouse or or a romantic engagement with someone else or whether it's a friendship or whether it's a kind of a connection with someone else or you put work or you put success or you put how you look or you put your health at the centre of your life or you put achievement at the centre of your life but whatever you do if you're putting something at the centre of your life that is not God you're fundamentally putting something that is not strong enough to take the weight of a lifetime of hope and expectation and what happens when we put something at the centre of our life, including children, that is not strong enough to bear the weight of it, is either these things don't deliver, and we find ourselves frustrated or lost or without an anchor, and we wonder, why, why is my life not going well? Because you can't control, ultimately, your health. You, you dedicate everything to eating healthily, to exercising, taking care of yourself, and that's great. But what happens when you get diagnosed with something incurable that is going to take you down? It's all very well to build. I'm going to put my, you know, my, my, my relationship with my wife or my husband or my boyfriend or my partner at the center of my life, and that's all very well. But what happens if that romantic relationship then goes wrong or breaks down or lets you down or the person lets you down? What if you put success and achievement at the center of your life and then you start to fail, perhaps even through no fault of your own? There's frustration. There's a lack of balance and peace about it. But even more worrying, what happens when you put something at the center of your life? And then you focus on it so much that you place a weight on it that it can't bear. So you put your kids at the center of your life. My kids are everything to me. And actually what you start to do is oppress them and squash them and put a weight on them that they can't bear, which is why you find it so difficult when they show you up. And it's why you find it so frustrating when they don't behave. And it's why you find it so devastating when they grow older and go and leave and start living their own life. And they don't phone you as often as you'd like and they're not dropping around. And why? They were never designed to be in the center. The five shekels reminds us that our kids are not designed to be in the center of our lives because we otherwise try and control them to make them what we want them to be, to produce this ideal family that we've got in our minds and we end up trying to live vicariously through them and their achievements, but they don't want to live the kind of life we want them to live, and we're frustrated, and tensions and strains come in, or we're disappointed when things don't work out. To put your children in the center of your life is really, really cruel. It's cruel to you because they can't take the weight, and it's crueler to them. Because ultimately the pressure just squashes and squashes and squashes. Actually, to put God at the center of your life not only makes sense, because if God exists and wants to know us, then putting him central seems to be the most appropriate thing. And he is strong enough to bear the weight. God is the one thing that will never break or, or grow old or go wrong or let you down. Anything else that you put in the center of your life Something can happen and suddenly it's all gone. That will never happen with God. But also by putting God at the center of your life, it allows you to put everything else in the proper place, including your children. Which means actually with God at the center, you can be more loving, more caring, more nurturing of your children because you're not trying to live on top of them. You're not trying to use them as a foundation for your life. Because you've got this connection with God, it frees you and frees your children to be themselves. And actually you find, because I've got this connection with God and this internal peace and stability and security and significance through God, I'm no longer trying to find it through anything else, including my children, whether they're still little or whether they're teenagers or whether they're even adults and they've grown and gone. The five shekels reminds us only God fits at the center of our lives but I want to do one more thing. I want us to point to the big one. You see, the five shekels reminds us of those two things. Children are from God, and God alone is the thing that deserves to be central and actually works as being central. But the five shekels points to something bigger and greater than even the transaction that we've looked at. Jesus came to talk to us about God wanting to be a loving father towards us, a warm, affectionate, caring, present father. Not not a kind of a, a, a cruel judge in the sky or a spying, authoritarian, big brother figure that wherever you do, God's watching you and he's going to get you for it. Jesus said God is not like that. Jesus came to teach us that God is fundamentally giving rather than taking. And that can seem at odds with the five shekels thing. You could be thinking, well, hello, I'm, you know, I've, got my, I've got my five shekels here. All right, these are new ones, not old ones. And one of them is a four, five pence piece instead. But for the sake of argument, I've got my five shekels. God's fundamentally taking, isn't he? Because I had a baby, that's delightful. Now I've got to pay him a week's wages. Thanks a lot, God. You're fundamentally taking from me. No, 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 no. Because the five shekels points to something far better. In the Old Testament, you have a baby, you've got to pay five shekels. The New Testament where we find Jesus explained, it's the part of the Bible that talks us all about Jesus, we find the whole thing flipped on its head. We find actually instead of God saying, hey, you've got a son, I want you to kind of contribute, buy him back from, from me. God says, do you know what? I've got a son, Jesus, God's son. And the message of Jesus is that in Jesus, God is buying us back for himself. Not just with five little coins that you could mistake as you know, f- five pence pieces. One of them is a five pence piece, just for the sake of honesty here. But God is buying us back with Jesus. The the, the, the five shekels points forward to when instead of asking us to buy something back from God, a son, however precious, God says, I'll give my son the most precious thing in the universe. I'll give Jesus for you to buy you back. The message of Jesus is that he came to be the five shekels for us. The message of Jesus is that he came to live a life it was God come to earth. He lived a life in our place. He died a death on the cross. Jesus' death wasn't just a miscarriage of justice. It was him buying us back. It was him giving his life so that all the stuff that we've put at the center of our lives that have disconnected us from God can be taken out the way and God can be central. Jesus died on the cross so that people like you and me can reconnect, not so we can have a religion. Nobody really wants a religion. But it's a relationship with God. It's a connection with God that Jesus came to bring. And then he rose from the dead. Extraordinary as that may seem. There is a wealth of historical evidence we could look at if we had time going into it. The message of Jesus is that he buys us back. In Jesus, God gave his son to bring people like you and me back to him. And a Christian is someone who has accepted that Jesus has paid this cost for us himself, that Jesus is the ultimate five shackles for us. And a Christian is someone who in doing that moves God into the center of their life and moves the other things out. doesn't throw them away. It's not that we don't care about our kids or about our friends or our marriage or our work or our health, but it's we no longer look to build our life significance on those things. But we look to build our life significance on God being central. Paul And Kat have done that. They're Christians. That's what it means that they're Christians. But Oliver and Charlotte can't do that. They're too small. They're little babies. A baby can't respond in that way. So clearly we can't be initiating them into anything today. Clearly we can't be making them Christians today. We've got to wait and see how they're going to personally choose to respond to Jesus themselves at some point when they're older. All we're doing, as I said at the start, is we're going to thank God for them. We're going to pray for them. We're going to pray for Paul and Kat and see what life brings to them. But before we do pray, I just want to ask one slightly cheeky question. And I'm going to particularly ask it to those of you who are here to see the kind of the baby Thanksgiving thing. And it's slightly cheeky, and it's like, it's not about me. I came to support Paul and Cat. I came to see these little babies. I thought there might be some cake afterwards. There is cake afterwards. <laughs> You're not wrong. But I want to ask you a cheeky question. What about you? What's in the center of your life? What have you put in the center? Is it relationships? Is it achievements? Is it success? Is it health? Is it career? Is it a leisure activity? What have you put in the center? And I want to ask you, is it strong enough to take the weight of a whole lifetime? Is that thing going to be, whatever it is, however good, is that going to be able to give you security and significance for your whole life? Or are you putting too much weight on something that can't bear it, particularly if you've put your children in the center? And I guess I want to say to you, we're not doing five shekels today. We're just going to pray. We're not doing a wacky ceremony or a ritual. But I would urge you to take seriously the claims of Jesus. Rather than dismiss it as sprinkling some cake crumbs with a pint of Guinness. Or or, or throwing babies off a roof. Or jumping over them dressed as a devil. Or spitting and talking about chicken poo. Because Christianity is not just a philosophy or an ideal or a set of beliefs. Christianity claims to be self-consciously based on real historical events. It doesn't say, here's a nice moral way of living. It says, do you know why should I put God central? Because 2,000 years ago, there really was a person called Jesus who really was God come down, who really did die, who really did rise from the dead to reconnect and change everything. And the brilliant thing about that is you can investigate it. You can just debate a philosophy, You can explore a religion, but you can look for evidence and investigate Christianity. And I would urge you not to just think of it as El Calacho with a Christianized gloss or baby spitting in chicken poo with a sort of religious undertone, but actually to investigate for yourself and see what you find. Slightly cheeky, I know you didn't come here for that, but I'd feel wrong if I left you without that little question to sit in your mind.